Hey guys, this is Chuma, and you are listening to The Silent Doc. So, today I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Arash Daneshade. He is an amazing guest, and I want to just tell you a little bit about him before we get to the episode. So, he was born in Tehran, Iran, and raised in San Francisco Bay Area as a biracial refugee and formerly incarcerated youth where he has served the mission of educational equity for 16 years. He also serves as the national chair of Save the Kids from Incarceration, a national nonprofit focused on prison abolition and school-sanctioned violence, and co-edited a textbook on the topic of youth punishment entitled Understanding, Dismantling, and Disrupting the Prison-to-School Pipeline. For the past five years, he has taught classes on organizing movements in the Graduate School of Education at the University of San Francisco. Arash recently published research based on his doctoral work at UC Davis, an ethnographic study of black girls participating in restorative justice programs at a local alternative school in San Francisco, which focused on navigational and resistance capital among black girls. Currently, he serves as editor-in-chief of the Transformative Justice Journal. You guys are in for a treat. This is Chuma, and you're listening to The Silent Doc. I have already introduced our guest, Arash Danesade, uh, but I want to give him an opportunity to introduce himself. So, Arash, can you tell us tell us who you are? First of all, Dr. Obinemi, thank you for having me. Um, I am honored to be uh, a guest on your podcast, um, and thank you for the incredible introduction. Um, just a few bullet points, just so people get a salient sense of who I am as as a person. Um, um, uh, justice, youth justice impacted youth. So, uh, formerly incarcerated as a kid, uh, came to America as a refugee um, during middle school. Grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area after spending a year and nine months in refugee camps in Eastern. Uh, Europe and predominantly in Germany and London and then um, from there I uh, um, uh, Eastern Europe and then London and then I um, came to the United States as a refugee um, where I grew up in the Mission District of San Francisco which um, it sort of became my quasi home and I eventually um, pursued my master's and my doctorate in education and now i'm a professor at the university of san francisco and i also teach at san quentin state penitentiary um the crux of my praxis just to keep it just a band right now is <laughs> is really trauma-informed pedagogy and what that means is how does public health sort of bleed into the the very niche field of uh k-12 education um 
we oftentimes silo the two, but we can see that disparities in health often, often and almost always bleed into the classroom. It's the resilience of both teachers as well as students that helps stave that so students can even get a semblance of an education. So what I'm interested in and what my, what my book, doctoral research and my upcoming other articles and research is about is really how we can get to a place in which schools are not only vectors of healing, but are actually partners with public health spaces so we can be mindful of the types of traumas that either incarcerated youth, impoverished youth, refugee, transplant youth, all of which I have lived personally can transcend. Because I know that I was very lucky that my mom was a panther, that I have had many activists in my family, people who questioned the education system, people who did not allow me to fail, you know? You um, said your you said your mom was a you said a panther. So my mom in North my mom is North African. My dad is Persian. And in the seventies, my mom actually wrote for the Panther newspaper in Algiers. Algeria was actually the first country out, outside of the United States to have a chapter of BPP. And um, my mom wrote for the paper. She wrote for the mistreatment of the Bear Bear people, who are the sort of the Afro North Africans, the people who are descendants <laughs> of the Moors from Italy during the twelfth century. And so my mom wrote about a lot of anti-blackness um, in Algeria, and that got her extradited to Iran, where she met my dad. Then she had my brothers, and then me. I'm the baby of the family. Um, and my brothers died in the war against Iraq when I was a kid, which was sponsored and funded by the United States. Now, um, sort of uh, reminiscent of a lot of Du Bois' stuff, there's a in the same way that there's a cognitive dissonance for a black or brown, a black child to be in a public education system that historically has looted them of their own culture, their own spaces, and quite frankly, didn't even allow them to go to school until, uh, you know, to mainstream public education outside of all predominantly all black schools until Brown versus Board. I have that same cognitive dissonance to be a refugee in the country that made me one. And so I always felt a great deal of if I can just be really vulnerable with you right now, Chuma, survivor's guilt to honor the people who have sacrificed, not only the BPP people who made my mom who she is, and she made me an activist in my work as a professor and researcher and sort of a, a doctoral student for a long time. Knock on wood, that shit's finally over. But really thinking about, and I know you can relate, but really thinking about um, how... I can be more than just the exception to the rule. Like Bettine, Dr. Bettina Love, who's a professor at UGA, she always says we have to do more than survive, we have to thrive. And the way to get there is for schools to be more like concentric circles with society. You got schools at the micro system, and then around that you got the exosystem, you got the immediate community. But beyond that, schools are so disassociated, obviously we know on purpose, especially when it comes to black and brown youth. Now. When we say things like the school to prison pipeline, that is a misnomer because for two thirds of America's black youth, school is prison. And so when, how can there be a pipeline when school itself is an enclosure, an enclosure that is carceral? Students are told to shut the hell up. Students are told to ask questions when they're allowed. Students are told not to go to the bathroom unless they're allowed. So this level of latitude is not even granted, particularly to black youth, until they're adults. And so when you're not used to having sovereignty and autonomy over not only your own body, but the dialectic that goes on in your head, and it's fed to you by teachers, and there's no opportunity to question, put 
push, you know, push against power and privilege and question and critique and lead from an inquiry based classroom, students become very less cavalier to transform the systems that screwed them over. If you want to create refugees or black youth that don't have cognitive dissonance in schools that made them who they are or systems that made them refugees, then you need to consider what is the harm. And this kind of comes back full circle, Truman, I'll stop here. But what is the trauma that they are carrying with them in the first place? And so that trauma is the, either the hindrance or the fulcrum. You can turn trauma into an asset, but teachers and schools themselves have to do three things. They have to be informed about what the trauma is that students carry. They have to frame that trauma in a way that's an asset and not a deficit. Because when we say shit like, grit and growth mindset, we're essentially telling black kids, stop being black. Stop being black and try harder. At some point, I'm going to guess a white feminist professor from the School of Ed, like a Carol Dweck or Angelique Lee Duckworth, is going to is going to come out with a theory 50 years from now saying, um, act as white as possible, whatever the hell that even means. Um, what I know is, rather than asking the survivors of harm, historical looting, transcontinental slavery, imperialism, like me as a refugee and my mom, instead of having folks like us forcing us to acculturate and learn a second language and thrive in the schools that you superimposed on our cultures, perhaps the school itself should be a launch pad in which all those assets and those that social capital and the, uh, the cultural wealth that students of color, refugees, transplant kids, bring with them can be infused into the curriculum. So the curriculum itself is not only representative of the kids, but it has stakeholdership of the kids. That teachers are more like classroom facilitators in a fish, a proverbial fishbowl, rather than the um, sort of totalitarian autonomous leader, right? Creating sort of like my book and my research shows, and I can get into more what that research actually findings and what the methodology was if you're interested, Chuma. But really, mm -hmm. I looked at black girls because so often we also misgender. We assume whatever works for black boys is going to, one, work for black boys ubiquitously everywhere all over the world as if black men are a monolith. And two, what works for black boys is going to work for black girls as if black people overall are a monolith. And so this is sort of what I intend through my research and my work to expose to make schools sort of more harmonious with the students they purport to serve. So do you, so I guess, uh, I guess, are you, are you kind of positing that uh, because I, schools don't allow uh, students to, I guess, engage in inquiry on like a daily basis, that school is prison. And then because of that, it gets people, uh, tell me, tell me, it almost feels like there's two different things. Like, I guess you're saying one way school is prison, and but you're also talking about the uh, you know school to prison pipeline. How, how are those two things different? That's a great question. So there's two parts that I heard. One is how are schools different from prisons? How are they the same? And two, what do we even mean by the phenomenon of pipeline? What can we, what what exactly on a more sort of granular level am I talking about? So first, when I say school is prison. I'm not being literal, but I'm also not being that far off. Like this isn't a sort of far-fetched leap, intellectual leap that I'm asking your audience to make when I say school is prison. I want people to really think about a time 
in which they felt like they had no sovereignty over a decision over their bodies, right? A very prime example right now is what's happening in Texas, where we're essentially um, fomenting sort of indirectly telling people to become abortion vigilantes. I really need your audience to sit with this for a second. In Texas, they have motherfucking abortion vigilantes, bounty hunters for women who simply for health reasons or whatever reason want to have sovereignty over their own bodies. And this is when black subjects become black objects to policymakers. Now, taking the analog of Texas and what's happening to women, particularly women of color who have to, because of the lack of universal health care, true universal health care that we don't pay for because mm -hmm. we don't live in a socialist society. How do we create opportunities and advances in which not only can that laws like the one that just passed in Texas be reversed, but there's input from the very people who would be primarily impacted by it. Now, that I would say is while we're not putting every poor woman of color, impoverished woman of color in Texas in prison, by telling them that, hey, you might have to not only leave the state, but you might have to leave the country, which could decimate you financially to go get an abortion or any type of healthcare that is being outlawed. Because I know that law is not relegated to abortions only. I'm only speaking about them. So I just want to be clear with your audience. We're doing the same thing with kids. We're doing the same thing with kids. We tell kids by 18, you need to take initiative, have a plan. Know you're going to college. I mean, I know you grew up with a strict Nigerian father. I grew up with a strict Persian father, you know, who was a general. You know what I mean? So, like, these, this is, like, very strict. Like, you're supposed to be a dinaman. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is the type <laughs> of energy that my father put in. You know what I'm saying? So, but it comes from this idea that we are constantly in competition with our community to get to spaces that were not even engineered for us. That to me is pretty carceral, right? And so I, I sort of want to transition the mental framework that we're using around the word prison. When you and say make carceral. It carceral, which yeah, means yeah. this idea of like agency being sort of zapped away from kids. So by 18, when we're saying have a plan, go to college, you know, meet, meet your significant other, take initiative, build a family, a career, and a life, what does that mean? When you have almost up until the age 18, for most schools that I have consulted with around the country, we're telling students, your agency is tethered inextricably, almost like Jordan Peele's us, to the person that's sitting in front of the chalkboard. And so how do we create a system in which once the student is graduated, they can particularly when you consider the intersections of race, gender, and class, and trauma, I would add a fourth variable, trauma, because I don't want to speak for your experience, but being a mixed race brown refugee man in America who is non-native English speaking, was on welfare for a while, who has a single mom, was, was very, a vast departure from so many of my classmates in college. Mm -hmm. And so there were things that they felt emboldened to ask for in college, like internships, fellowships, things like that. I didn't have necessarily the agency and the assertion to go after those things until I had other men of color who looked like me or people of color, predominantly women of color were my mentors in college, who really propelled me into those spaces. 
School, I, I thrived despite school, not because of school. School was one of the most traumatizing experiences of my life, being a refugee in the country that made me one and being told that I wasn't smart enough to go to school. So how do we create schools that work in a partnership? You honor the agency and the traumas that students have. And when I say honor the trauma, I don't mean like some Sandra Bullock, Michelle Pfeiffer deprived white savior form of honoring. I mean, hey, like if you've had to survive and you've managed to build your own laptop, let's use a very far-fetched example. I'm guessing that places like Google and Apple and PayPal would probably love to have a kid like that someday who has the intellectual firepower and the lateral connections and the abstract thinking potential to be a creative coder or engineer, for example. Also capitalist, but you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> while I'm not endorsing that, what I am saying is the asset that the kid comes with should not be despite the school system. It should be leveraged by the school system. And we can't get to that point once the kids, until the kids and the families themselves have some level of political stakeholdership over school system. And that's not going to happen without resistance. So tell me, so uh, just to really nail this down, uh, yeah, yeah. you said uh, school was traumatic for you. And I think yeah. we keep, we're, we're talking about in kind of general terms about like the, the lack of control that you or the lack of agency that students are having in these spaces how how is how is uh how is their agency being sort of taken from them and then i do want to get to eventually like why you feel like chess is a is a uh, a helpful tool to i guess reinstill that agency absolutely so so through an inner that's a great question so one thing so do you know i i don't i don't want to sort of like uh doctoral explain you especially <laughs> you as well read and a fellow doctor um, okay. on this podcast so i don't know if you know the story of how the 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 piece the queen piece was actually added to the chessboard do you know the story i, I don't i don't know i mean i know how to play chess but i'm a novice player okay so well, I, 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 not, I, when I'm it comes to the history and all this stuff yeah i don't know much so yeah yeah yeah. i'm definitely not humble bragging or self-isolating <laughs> like i'm good that's I'm what we brought you here for, okay? <laughs> well, <laughs> my apologies for not being so thorough, but what I will say is the Queen piece, for example, was actually okay. introduced by the Moors during the 13th century. There was actually a nobleman, another aristocrat, that was one of the original pieces on the chessboard. And, and when chess said, created, I don't know who the Moors are. What, what would, I mean? So they're actually African warriors from North Africa who ended up, um, in, in, ended up in Spain, conquered the Spanish, came down to North Africa and also colonized parts of Persia. And so like the North, North Afro-Persians who live by the Caspian Sea are actually d direct descendants of the Moors in Iran. So hmm. Afro-Persians, a lot of them come from Spain and North Africa, like my people. So uh, I say this because it's like life imitating art or life imitating culture, right? Sort of things that we think are sort of whimsically social, like playing chess, actually had a lot of political connotation as well as cultural connotation. And the prime example is the queen piece. When the Moors, the kings would fight on the field with their generals and their soldiers, their warriors, 
the when they would die, it wasn't always their oldest sons that would take over their province. It was actually a lot of times it was the queen who would make all the calls. And the Moors were some of the first sort of it was sort of the first cultural epoch where women were primarily in charge of almost every facet of the kingdom. And so the Moors introduced the piece of the queen to the board um, and actually made her the most powerful piece on the board. And so this was during, this was what, almost a thousand years ago, Jumar. So when we, when we sort of think about sort of the emergence of, say, her name and other movements that are grounded on a bedrock of black feminism and black feminist thought, like a Patricia Hill Collins or a Sadia Hartman or other Angela Davis or a Kathleen Cleaver or Erica Huggins, you also have to remember that some of the games that we find to be intellectual that we want women to sort of break the proverbial glass ceiling on were actually created with the intent to be representative of the stakeholdership and agency that women were actually taking during the 12th century. But because the history of the game itself was not being taught through a culturally sustainable lens, we were just saying, you know, look at these grandmasters in Eastern Europe who have won access to boards, access to instructors, access to master instructors, access to materials and tournaments and opportunities to get better. Over time, there has been sort of a Fanon veil over our eyes that, hey, black and brown people created this motherfucking game. We created this game. Not only did we create this game, we added a gender sort of variable that transcended what the sort of presumably gendered pieces do. And I'm not here trying to gender chess pieces, objects, but that's sort of the public narrative having gone to the World Chess Hall of Fame in St. Louis, my old nonprofit Hip Hop Chess Federation. We actually have an exhibit under the Bobby Fisher exhibit, the one level over, um, one level below that in St. Louis, if any of your audience happens to live in St. Louis, mm. where we talk about everything I'm talking about right now, how black and brown folks, black warriors, the Moors, the Persians, the, um, the Algerians, the Moroccans, everyone has added an element to a game that we didn't know about. And it was deliberately erased from the history of the game to make it seem like intellectual games like this were not made for us, they were made by us, right? And you can use sports examples. You could talk about the black quarterback as an analog, right. right? There have been plenty of opportunities for, or you can talk about music and dance and hip hop. That's why we're called Hip Hop Chess Federation because we teach our students political resistance and the history of our diaspora as political activists through the game of chess, through hip hop, the, the sort of the genesis of hip hop and the double-edged sword of hip, hip hop images that the industrial side of hip hop sort of put, push, pushes out. We also teach them through jujitsu and martial arts. And one of the things that we teach at, at, our, at my nonprofit is we, we teach the, the kids that like things like um, uh, Kalamba or, or, uh, or um, a lot of dances like Capoeira in Brazil, um, these games were actually, these, these dances and these martial arts moves were actually codes for enslaved Africans in the Caribbean. People in, in, in Trinidad would dance as code that eventually became um, uh, Calamba, 
I can't really. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it, <laughs> but it's it's sort of the it's sort of like a proxy of capoeira. It's sort of like a right. martial arts dance that's performed to a very light uh, sort of strumming of a drum or, 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 or a, a musical instrument. But it was actually 5 p.m. We're going to the master's house. We're slitting his throat. We're leaving this plantation. If kids knew this history, not only does it reimagine the appreciation they can have for the sort of diasporic genesis of capoeira and things like chess, but they can understand that that is a litmus, that is a bedrock of what activism should look like, right? That not only are we teaching them, are we teaching our kids that, hey, push back on power, speak, speak to privilege, understand that you are living in an ancestral spectrum of activism that without Huey and Asada, we wouldn't have had Angela without Angela, you know, like we wouldn't have had uh, so many activists today and all the black feminist folks who are not only on social media, but organizers and organizing spaces and people who are just doing great work in the community. So if we actually had um, a, a sort of a literacy, a historical literacy of how we have been, our children have been historically and variably looted of the history of things like capoeira and chess and even hip hop, right? Then, then I think they would understand that these movements, hip hop as a movement, martial arts as a movement, chess as a movement, has a political connotation. And, and, and they are not the first, and they certainly will not be the last to push back on white supremacy, patriarchy, classism, capitalism. Right. But if students, con the kids constantly feel like they have to be the proverbial ancestors to all things black, all things refugee, all things brown, all things anti-cop, anti-ice, it becomes overwhelming at, at a point. But when you teach them, hey, you're not the first. These games that you're playing right now were grounded on a literacy of resistance. They'll it almost like evaporate because i know because i worked with thousands of students throughout my career including and until today um they don't it it, re, it it disabuses them of the gravitas of hey like white supremacy like the goal like my ancestors failed and i have to like move the needle rather than no we actually have moved the needle the needle keeps readjusting because that's how capitalism white rage and white gaze works but if you understand that there are people who have come before you and the education system has deliberately not only whitewashed, but uh, curating what you think chess is, what you think capoeira is, then you can appreciate that resistance is not something you choose to do. It's in your blood. It's in your DNA. It's in your epigenetics. You know, there are literally methane groups that are blocking proteins because of the stress that your ancestors had. And in order to get those proteins to be activated, there's literally research being done right now on epigenetics that shows that um, there's a great book by uh, Denise Burks called The Deepest Well. And it's literally about Oakland Hills to East Oakland, 1.2 square miles difference. The average lifespan of a black child in the Oakland Hills who grew up under sort of the proverbial black excellence, black capitalist sort of provided for, is 22 years longer 
than a kid who grows up in deep East Oakland or the bottoms. And they're separated, Chuma, by 1.2 square miles, but that's, that's, that to me is a tragedy. When you consider that the Bay Area, if it were its own country, would have the seventh largest GDP, according to Forbes, in the world. And that's just a section of California, my brother. So why is it that one mile away, a black kid has 22 years left, less lifespan? Well, I can tell you. Uh, we can look at the fact that there's a Chevron refinery in Richmond, not that far away, where suit is constantly flooding into the atmosphere. I can tell you that capitalists charge children to live in communities, char charge their families of children to live in communities where there's cleaner air. That's also how redlining works. This has a public health impact. So students' cortisol levels, their stress levels are already at an all-time high. Now we look at the curriculum. And we just just wax rhapsodic about how the curriculum is whitewashed and curated and manufactured to build consent amongst youth, to build a labor movement. And also for kids to think that black people, black history and brown history started with colonization and it's slavery. How we get beyond that, how we get beyond the epigenetics of trauma, what Denise Burks was talking about in The Deepest Well, is by teaching them that, hey, you're not the first. We've been fighting for a minute and we still here, but we can't get to the still here proverbial Antoine Fisher moment unless they know their history. And that's where I teach my graduate students who are uh, aspiring administrators and teachers. So I teach doctoral students and master's students. So basically people who have been teachers who now wanna like run schools or start their own schools or start their own nonprofits and do movement work. That's who I educate. And, um, one thing that I find fascinating is how much we blame children for things that preceded them by literally hundreds of years. And so to me, and I teach my students this, there are four forms. What do you, when you say you, physical whoa. form of prison. Okay. But what, what, when you say they're blamed for things that happened to them hundred years before, what, what specifically are you talking about? That's a great example. Okay. So, um, Let's look at the south side of Chicago. They have put, actually, no, let's look at California because I know California really well. So there were something like uh, Kamala Harris put, um, when she was our state district attorney, she pushed for a policy to be passed in public schools where a certain number of truancies could actually lead to suspension and then a certain number of suspensions that were tethered to truancy specifically would get kids locked up. And then after a point of them being locked up for a certain number of times, the parents would get locked up. And there was something like 200 black parents who got locked up during the tenure that Kamala Harris spent in California, which is why a lot of our folks didn't fuck with her when she was running here. We didn't fuck with her because she didn't fuck with her own people. So when she says, I'm marching with AKAs and the Howard marching band, you know where you're marching? You're marching them into the school to prison pipeline. So thank you, Kamala. But um, my point is, is that that is a form of carceral enclosure, right? The precursors to a firing is usually what? A performance improvement plan. You might quit a job if that's happening, but you know that the next step is gonna be worse than the, pre the precursor step. That's the same thing we're doing with kids. When we're telling them that, hey, I don't care why you're late to school, never mind the fact that you have to perhaps walk through very dangerous neighborhoods, you're hungry, 
and your parents got to work. Like my mom had three jobs, wasn't hard to cook for myself, which is why I'm a good cook now. But like, if you have to do this and you're 15 minutes late, this is what we want to spend our capital on. This is what we want to spend tax dollars on is locking up hardworking black and brown parents because their kids are late. So I, I, I feel like rather than sort of getting to the crux, which is why are you late? We're blaming them for being late. And that, that starts with housing policies. That starts with nutrition gaps. That starts with literacy gaps. That starts with food deserts. That means why the fuck after all these years is there not a grocery store in East Palo Alto when half a mile away in Palo Alto you have the highest per capita income rate in the in the in the country. Right? Over a little tiny causeway. That's the size of my living room. So I, I just I I I get it's grotesque to tell students you are blamed for an outcome rather than looking at the root. And Angela Davis has a really great quote where she says, transformative justice starts with a radical mindset towards change. What radical means is not looking at uh, symptoms of oppression, but the root of oppression. And oftentimes, she says, we criminalize the symptoms of oppression thinking that we are actually addressing the root of oppression. And truancy is a great, I think, a simple example that I think is a sterling example of how we blame victims. Does yeah. that answer your question, Chuma? Yeah, I kind of wanted to, I mean, I guess you started talking about justice, so I guess I, I feel like we should touch on this a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, I was actually um, going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so maybe we should talk about, um, you mentioned transformative justice. In the beginning of your intro, we, we talked a little about restorative justice. Can you, I guess... I guess, can you talk about those two ideas and how they sort of compare to like, I guess, standard ideas of justice that people who may not be exposed to some of your work? Yes, that's a great question. And I actually get asked this question by educators, teachers all the time. Okay. Um, what happened to restorative justice? Why are we talking about transformative justice? So the best way to put this is that they're, they're kind of like two sides of the same coin, but they're not exactly the same side. Right. Okay. One is sort of like taking accountability and the other is sort of making sure that that accountability doesn't ever have to be taken again. Okay. So one is sort of like making sure that parents and kids and teachers, and everyone is aware of why little, you know, Arash is late to school. He's hungry. He has to cook for himself. His mom leaves 5 a.m. to go to work, which is literally what my mom would do. And sometimes I'll be late. I was late all the time in first period, right? I still graduated seventh in my class. But that's because I went to a school in which my principal was like, I'm not going to suspend y'all for stupid shit. Literally, I said this to us before. So, like, I, we, we need to ascribe to that philosophy of not only empathy with the kids and families, but understanding of the outcomes, like truancy, isn't exactly a pathological reason to suspend someone. We're pathologizing people and associating outcomes with their personality. Eventually, that bleeds into their race, right? Then eventually it becomes Chuma's not late to class. Black people are late to class. Arash doesn't hate America. Uh, Middle Easterns hate freedom. Where have you heard that one before? Right? Never mind the fact that Operation Ajax, the CIA, you know, M1, all of these, all of these, intelligence agencies 
did coups and screwed over our countries, Nigeria and Iran being two examples of OPEC nations who have been screwed over. Instead, we're like, why do those black and brown people hate us so much? Well, we the same way we talk about the outcomes of imperialism overseas is the same way we talk about black and brown youth domestically, right? It went from Arash is late to brown kids are Right. And so once we can individually think in context of what a kid is going through, where they have to be late, you're no longer suspending them, a la Kamala Harris, for being late. That is transformative justice. Restorative justice is understanding that I am complicit in these in these suspension rates of black and brown youth. One, because I am literally the policy one who put these policies in place. But two, I'm the one who pathologized them as the problem. I'm the one that said a black body is an existential threat. I'm the one who said being late is worthy of a of cell bars rather than, hey, we don't want our kids to be late. Let's make sure they're all fed before class. Hey, we don't want our kids to be late. Let's make sure they all have eyeglasses. At the last high school I taught at, John O'Connell High School in the Mission, we actually did a partnership with uh, LensCrafters in San Francisco. And they gave like a like a very reduced rate for like reading glasses for a lot of our kids. Chuma, I should, I don't have the exact percentage because it was like a few years ago, but the SAT, ACT scores for our kids jumped at least thirty percent for certain wow. groups of students. After that, hmm. but imagine the kids like sh- already thinks they ain't worth a damn. Already thinks college ain't for them. They're first gen. They're an immigrant like me. Neither, both parents have a fifth grade education. I'm trying to go to school, but I can't see. I know that I don't have health insurance. Why do I even bother saying I can't see? The teacher thinks what? Araj is sitting in the back because he doesn't give AF. Give me glasses, transformation. Now, that's a very simplistic and quite frankly, trite example I gave you. But an example that I have seen of project-based, design-based leadership and transformative justice started with restorative justice. I feel like we should jump to, because I really want to ask you, uh, just to tie some of this stuff up, like what is your what is the purpose of education in um, your mind? the purpose of education is to create citizens who want to transform society into a better one than the one they inherited and i think that we need to understand that everyone sort of there's a theory in education called gestalt theory which is you basically bring what's called schema and schema in education means you points of it just is a fancy ass word for points of reference right Right. So if you so you see, for example, like a lot of tight ends in the NFL are like former basketball players. Right. Because going up for a touchdown as a tight end, oftentimes it's like going up for a rebound and boxing out. So you're like booty bump in the corner or the safety. And then you you go up for the pass. But it's so much like boxing out in basketball, which I I played basketball and like you're hooping. But so many of my boys who are taller than me also played football. Because it was like getting a rebound. Now, thinking in context, education needs to be more like that. So I just want to give you one example. At one of the schools that we worked with, 
um, where we basically, one of the schools in San Francisco basically got rid of suspensions for anything that wasn't like an immediate danger to kids or adults. So unless a kid was like, I got a nine and I'm coming to school and I'm about to clap everybody, kids are not getting suspended. So you talked a little bit about the purposes of education. The question I guess I have for you is how do you feel like our our public education system or private education system as it is sort of functions now, how does it, you know, does it truly um, achieve your purpose of education and like, you know, making people you know, active, motivated citizens who, who engage in resistance? That, yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's the goal. So the last part of your question is sort of the goal, right? We want them to be aware of what's going on, not only in the current epoch, but what preceded them in order to have a, a wide spanning historical lens of like what has worked Panthers, young lords, all the activists who came before us, but also where we need to go. It really, I think, encapsulates this. So I want to read a few disparities to you. So black students made up just in 2021, or I'm sorry, just before COVID, 2019, 20%, a fifth of the students who were physically restrained in California. That's just in California. A third of the students were mechanically restrained, even though black students now only represent 5% of kids going to public schools. So black youth are one out of every kid, one out of every three kids who either get locked up or suspended or expelled, but they're only 5% of all the kids who go to school. So five out of 100, but 33 out of 100 are the ones getting in trouble. So that's a huge disparity. So that right there, I feel like encapsulates where there's a sort of a, a draconian and myopic focus on seeing black youth as existentially threatening, which is not a far leap from cops who shoot black people and under the auspice of fearing for their lives. So if we can begin to create very honest and vulnerable classroom conversations through restorative circles in which students can name the problems in their own communities, then there is what we call in education, um, ownership theory, which is when you feel like you own a part of something or the outcome of something or you're associated with something, you're more likely to give a shit. So if I if I feel like I'm involved in building a house and it's my house, I'm going to make sure that my house got a fat, you know what I mean? A fat living room. It's going to be nicely decorated. You know what I mean? I'm going to have my Jodeci posters in my playroom. You know what I mean? I'm going to have my Panther posters in my office and I'm going to have the roomy quotes in the living room. But if it ain't my crib, it's let's say it's educated crib or something like your brother, I'm, I'm going to make sure that it, it, I, I'm not, I defer to him. And oftentimes students defer to teachers because they feel like they have no ownership over what happens or doesn't happen in the school. It's not really their school. It's a place they're forced to go, right? Compulsory learning, as we call it. Now, how do we create a system in which not only can students restore through a restorative circle, literally a circle in which they can name societal problems they take ownership over, but teachers can be more like facilitators 
that grant them the information and the tools and the reconnaissance that they need to address that problem. Now, someone might say, this is a great pipe dream, Arash. What is it going to cost? How does it even work? Have schools even done it? And the answer is, as my mom would say, hell to the yes, four words. Okay? So what, what that example is, in the mission of California, where the preponderance of black and brown students are left in what's you know, really, quite frankly, a, a, stu a city that is um, really as white as Orange Theory and Whole Foods. Um, this school decided to get rid of suspensions. And what this school did was they shaved off about eight minutes from their classroom. And we worked with myself and other professors who were consulting with the school. We, we worked with the teacher unions. They agreed to it. What we did was we created a seventh period lab classroom. Now in that classroom, we called it the RJ transform slash TJ. And RJ is the acronym for restorative justice. And TJ is the acronym for transformative justice. So in my book, you know, what, you know, in my book, what do we mean by restorative, which is about a, a case study, a qualitative case study on black girls in California. What I looked at was this particular school that essentially created freedom fighters. So on the heels of what was happening in Flint, Michigan, where the majority of public schools that serve black students were having toxic lead runoff in their water fountains and, and their faucets, the kids working with Dr. Elaine Brown, who's a former Black Panther minister, who works with a lot of formerly incarcerated people getting out of prisons in California, she created an urban gardening project in San Francisco and East Oakland. Now, our school partnered with Dr. Brown, and we created an urban gardening project in the back of our high school. Now, the kids were like, yo, we want to sell produce, but if we sell this produce at our local San Francisco farmer's market to the rich tech dorks, are we going to get sued because this soil might not be clean? So in that seventh period class, Chuma, the AP chemistry teacher taught them how to measure lead. The ethnic studies teacher taught them the history of gentrification in San Francisco and why there might even be toxic lead runoff in the soil in their community in the first place. The bio teacher taught them the impact of selling produce from their urban garden that may be poisonous. And the English teacher worked with the kids using Shakespeare and Tupac and, and, and Lupe and, and Chaucer and a very eclectic mix of street preachers as well as academic preachers throughout our history taught kids to work on their public speaking skills. So what did the kids do in the seventh period class where they measured the urban, the topsoil in their urban garden with, that they were doing with formerly incarcerated folks and Dr. Brown? Well, they did a presentation to our former mayor of San Francisco, Ed Lee, who passed away a few years ago before uh, London Breed, um, uh, assume that role as mayor. They did a presentation about their urban garden and they shared that working with their their chemistry teachers at their school, they found that their soil is not clean, Chuma. They can't sell this stuff at the farmer's market. Within two weeks, bro, they got forklifts of orchard supply, free and clean topsoil by the mayor's office donated to their school. To this day, every other Saturday at the Embarcadero uh, Ferry Building, which is a really famous building in San Francisco, when you and your lady come visit, I'll take you there. Um, 
my kids, my former students sell their produce that they, that they grow in the back of their school at their urban garden. Now, when those kids graduate, they're going to come back as alumni and help the next cohort of urban gardeners at their school to learn about the history of gentrification, redlining, what's happening in Flint, and also making sure that their garden is clean. But they wouldn't have gotten to that, Chuma, if they didn't understand that there was a potential threat in the soil. So you begin to see the social justice connection between horticulture, botany, medicine, uh, urban planning, and gardening. That seventh period class is the transformative justice. But without the restorative justice, where the first half of the school year, the kids were just talking about, yo, what are some of the societal problems we even want to address that we think we can address? What we call SMART goals, right? Specific, I tell my kids, always have SMART goals. Specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. Meaning every benchmark, you have to tell me when you want to see that benchmark. Within two weeks, within three weeks, within three months, within two years, what? And staying with their SMART goals and this seventh period class, our kids, Chuma, became basically panther cubs. They did urban gardening. That they, were they were selling their produce to food. They were giving their, some of their excess produce to the food bank in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. So not only are they feeding the tech dorks by, you know, kind of upping the prices and recycling that money and funneling it back, but they're also learning about economics. They're learning about saving. They're learning about investing. They're learning about seed money, literally and figuratively. But they wouldn't have done that, Chuma, if all the classes were first through sixth period, siloed, had no connection, the teachers didn't teach together. There was no actual problem the students were addressing. You know what my students were saying before that class? What do I have to learn how to measure? What is the importance of knowing how to measure pH in soil? Who cares? When am I ever going to do that? Right. I'm a black man living in East Oakland. Where am I going to measure soil? There's a concrete jungle. It's no, cold. but that's, a, that's so, pretty – I mean, I think that's a really, like – I don't know. That, I think that's a really awesome example of how, like, you. the importance of, like, I think – transformative and restorative justice. Now, I'm curious, like, so now, I mean, you kind of, you know, mentioned your your book. I just, where can people, because we're, we're probably going to, I think we touched on a lot of things. Um, where can people find your book? Where can people still get access to, you know, the things you're thinking about, what you're writing Absolutely. on, things like that? Right. So I have two consulting firms. One is uh, uh, Third Space Educators. Another one is one that I work with in partnership with my business partner, Brittany Kufad. Um, and that one's called Joyful Learning Classroom. So okay, okay. Third, space, third Space Educators is my educational consulting firm where I work with districts and teachers and mentor administrators and up, you know, novice teachers who are like first or second year teachers working in communities of color that are very impoverished. And so they have low resources. So how do you do creative things? make education interesting, but also make it to your earlier question, Chuma, make it so they're active citizens once they graduate, right? That's my goal. And so I also have a website called drarashdanesade.com. I'm also on the gram, Dr. Arash D. I'm also on Twitter, A underscore Danesade, or you can look up Dr. Arash Danesade on Twitter and you'll find me. I'm the only Dr. Arash Danesade. No <laughs> surprise. Um, I have 
several books. My book that just came out um, okay. is right here. Yeah, what's the um, title? The title is What Do We Mean by Restorative? A Qualitative oh. Analysis of a Restorative Justice Program's Impact Upon Black Girls in California. And then my other book is called Hip Hop Activism, and that's with um, Anthony Nocella um, at University of Utah and Dr. Ahmad Washington at University of Louisville. And the three of us all basically look at how do we create schools that are not only equitable for black and brown youth, but consider some of the traumas that they have to live with living in this racist, capitalistic ass society. And how do we create education that is actually fruitful and utilitarian? So it's not just arcane theories and esoteric terms, but actually tools that they can take with them throughout their lifetimes. And so um, you can look, like I said, you can look me on Third Space Educators, Dr. Rashtan Day, all my websites and my books. But thank you so much, Tuma, for the opportunity, man. I look forward to being a guest again someday soon. Thank you. So uh, that that was dope, uh, Dr. Donashade. I I appreciate you giving us our time, um, and I think this is a silent doc signing off. Appreciate you. Thank you, Dr. Obinam.